From the MGMA in-home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. Hello, this is Daniel Williams, Senior Editor at MGMA. I'm host of the MGMA Insights Podcast and so glad to be talking with you today. As 2021 began to wind down, I started reviewing the 50 plus podcasts from the year and began looking for themes. And I found a few that really spoke to me, resilience, innovation, and kindness. When I think of healthcare, healthcare professionals, patients, pretty much all of us, those are the terms that resonate with me. Resilience, innovation, and kindness. In sifting through this year's episodes, I found three shows that spoke to those themes that really stuck with me. I'm going to play the highlights from those shows in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsors. Is your accounts payable process causing headaches? Mineral Tree provides HIPAA compliant, easy to use, end-to-end accounts payable and payment automation solutions that reduce costs by more than 75%. Mineral Tree is a leading AP and payment automation provider in healthcare, and they would love to show you why. To learn more, visit mineraltree.com slash MGMA. It's time to take a closer look at how you run your business. Metavolve can help you find solutions to the following questions. Are you overstaffed in your medical billing department? Do you know where your physician practice is losing money? Can you easily benchmark your data against similar practices? If you don't know the outcomes your staff are producing every day, you aren't operating successfully. So go to metavolve.com to learn more. In this best of end of year show, we're joined by three healthcare experts. First up is Laurie Bedke. Laurie is Director of Healthcare Leadership Programs at Creighton University. In this conversation, recorded in February 2021, Laurie talks about resiliency, resilient leaders, and the habits of high performing executives. Let's go to that conversation now. I think we all know that term resilience, but what does it mean to you and what does it mean to be a resilient leader? Yeah, I, I tell you what, resilience and, and um, resilience is, is a word that has become a buzzword if it was not prior uh, to this past 11 or 12 months. Um, I mean, if, if, if it were rewind just a little bit and kind of start with what the dictionary has to say, Mm-hmm. Resilience is our ability to withstand or recover from difficult conditions. I think about it as, as a mental picture. When I'm thinking about resilience, I picture a rubber band, Daniel. Mm-hmm. That rubber band, that small piece of, of, of office supply material is pretty useful, isn't it? It has a lot of utility. I can wrap a rubber band around a big you know, package of, of markers that I'm going to take to a whiteboard strategy session. I can wrap it around a big stack of papers. And 
if I then take it off of those items, it really kind of goes right back to its original shape. If it's in good condition, right? If I leave that said stack of papers on my windowsill for um, several seasons and it gets weathered and aged and brittle and dry, it might snap. So when I think about resilience, I think about the utility that we each need to have to, as that dictionary said, withstand or recover from difficult conditions. And I think that there are two different ways that we can look at resilience. It can be bouncing back, meaning kind of go back to the state that you were in before, like that rubber band. But there's a second way to think about it that I think is really useful for us as leaders, because anytime that we endure a hardship or an adversity or a season of challenge, like the one that we're living in right now, we can think about bouncing up. Um, we can think about taking with us some of the, the lessons learned or the information that we've gathered, um, whether it is because of a win or something that was epiphany when we were face down on the arena floor, as it were. Um, and we can wrap ourselves in that learned experience and bounce up. We can let what we live through inform the way that we go ahead so that we can do it in a more effective way. And so if we think about resilience with those definitions or metaphors in mind, then we think about what is resilient leadership? Well, I think that uh, resilient leadership is in many ways leadership by example. It is our ability as leaders in whatever capacity that we're leading, um, to be an example or a role model or um, a bellwether, as it were, for what others can see. They see us vulnerably and authentically and humbly um, facing into that headwind and possibly stumbling from time to time, but continuing to seek learning and formation from it and rising again and rising better informed. I also think it's a call to self-advocacy because when we are in challenges, uh, we need to make sure that we are taking care of ourselves. It's about sustaining ourselves so that we can better serve others and steward what's been entrusted to us. Um, and it's about fortifying our internal capacity to rise to those challenges and continue to push back against what the world brings to our doorstep. Mm -hmm. When I hear terms like resilience, emotional intelligence, any of those, my, my thought is always, is this something you're you're born with? Is it innate within someone, or is it is it learned? Is there a little bit of both? What what are your thoughts on that? And and if it is something we can learn, and I sure hope it is, uh, what are some steps we can take to be better resilient leaders? Wow, yeah, you you're spot on. Uh, I I think that a substantial body of evidence confirms that we can, in fact increase or strengthen our resilience. Look, hard is normal. Hard is normal. I don't like swallowing that pill myself, mm -hmm. but it's true, right? right? It's true in our personal and our professional lives. Adversity is inevitable. It will present itself in some way, shape, or form. It's really not a matter of if, but when. Think about it. We can um, we can have a really bad performance on a, a project or a presentation. We can go through things in our personal life. We 
the, the loss of a loved one, the displacement from a job. Um, this global pandemic is an example of the types of adversities that we will experience. But um, resilience is actually enabled by well-being. So that's something that the literature confirms time and again. And we can't necessarily outsource or buy that. But we can condition ourselves to grow the muscles that enable, that, that, that enable or inform our best selves. So if we think about well-being, there are a number of different categories that make up well-being. It's our physical well-being, it's our um, social or community well-being, our financial well-being, our spiritual well-being. But if we just start with knowing that, if we're thinking about, as, as you asked, how can we grow or build that within ourselves? Well, we should probably start with, you know, the blocking and tackling of sleep and nutrition and exercise. Is it hard? Yep, but it's important. And, and it's a law of diminishing returns for us individually if we are not making sure that the vessel that we pour from as a leader is full. We can't give to others what we don't have for ourselves. And that is terrifically challenging, especially in, in months like we're living in, right? Because right. The workload just compounds. We were busy and taxed and challenged as leaders in, in the physician practice environment, in healthcare as a whole, before the pandemic just came and, and you know, exacerbated that and, and dumped exponentially more workload and complexity and uncertainty onto us. So for me to say that sleep and nutrition and exercise is important. I'm sure that some of you may have just lost your eyeballs rolling them into the back of your head. But again, let me reinforce that, you know, we can't pour from an empty vessel and think about how much more you can produce and the potency and the efficacy of your performance individually when you are firing on all cylinders, when you've been consistently investing in your physical well-being. Think about the social and community aspects or elements of well-being. We should not isolate. We should not withdraw. We as humans are renewed by the reciprocal relationship, uh, by the reciprocal nature of relationships. And so it's important for us to be there for others because we will be renewed by that. But it's also important to lean into others when we need to be supported. And that part of making sure that we're connecting with others and, and asking for help when we need it or giving help to others has renewing elements as well that helps us to be resilient. Think about how much it, it helps you to feel like you belong to a group. Um, whether it's MGMA or some other, um, you know, community group or, or friend group even. When we feel like there are other people who are standing behind us, we can go to battle a lot more effectively or stand up to something that maybe brings fear to us or is intimidating way easier if we know that we're elbow to elbow or, you know, that you have people behind you. And so, again, when we're taxed professionally, when we're challenged by, by things like this pandemic, it's tempting to just isolate, withdraw, hunker down, focus on work, but we should not overlook the importance of investing in those social relationships. And those are a couple of the things that can help us to grow resilience. And I would argue there, there are so many more, but I know time is working against us today. If you think about how important it is to 
invest in activities like I've just mentioned so that you can bring your best and so that you're leading by example and others who are taking their cues from you are doing the same and that we're encouraging the entire body of individuals that are a part of our, our practice, our organization, our system to do the same. Now we're talking about the incremental and, and scalable compounding growth of more effective performance. Now, in earlier correspondence, you had written that healthcare is replete with disruption, and you were talking about some of the disruptions we've all been facing here, but are there some particular large disruptions that you've seen occurring in healthcare due to COVID? Yeah. Wow. Well, where to start, right? As we already alluded, there, are, there were plenty of challenges before we moved into our current COVID reality. Um, but I'll point to two that I'm most concerned by. I mean, one, our workforce has been more deeply challenged than ever. We entered the pandemic under a crisis of fatigue and burnout, but this has compounded that reality and the state of fatigue and demoralization that healthcare professionals are experiencing is at record historical highs, unfortunately. And so that's one reality um, that I think that we are going to have to deal with. And the more proactively and, and the more intentionally, the better. Um, two, the internal and external disruptions at healthcare's doorstep are at fever pitch. Um, you know, mergers, acquisitions, an increasing presence of and competition from private equity, from mega retail um, and other corporate entities, from tech and, and, and the biotech space is really substantial. And so that complexity and that, that uncertainty compounds the state of overwhelm that we're all facing. Um, so I think those again are are an exacerbation of what we each feel as it pertains to our endeavor or attempt to be resilient whether it's individually or within our organizations or frankly within our profession as a whole mm -hmm. what can resilience then do to combat some of these disruptions how do we steel ourselves against that and and kind of face that headwind as you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think that the more intentional and strategic that we are as leaders, mm -hmm. the more effectively that we can combat the disruptions. So, um, you know, the more effectively that we condition ourselves to have a realistic expectation that hard is normal. If we wake up with that expectation and it's not a surprise to us that we're tempted to wither from or complain about, the better that we'll be able to strategically um, and consistently show up and, and chip away at those challenges. And I think the second element that I would mention, and you alluded earlier in your remarks to emotional intelligence, another topic that I teach on frequently and is near and dear to my heart, the more that we are able as leaders or individuals to lengthen that space between a stimulus and our response, um, the more strategically that we'll execute, both individually and collectively. Um, if we look at <clears throat> that topic of emotional intelligence from a neuroscience perspective. Our brains are hardwired to give emotion the upper hand. 
our lower brain, the limbic system, the amygdala, loves to engage, fight or flight. But our upper brain is where executive function occurs. So the wise leader invests in making sure that they can stretch that space between stimulus and response, practicing mindfulness, preparing ourselves to perform under pressure so that our actions are measured, so that they're aligned to our desired objectives, and that all of our actions and, and all of our directives um, follow suit. So when we think about, again, when I'm teaching on emotional intelligence, it's very easy for people to compare IQ and EQ, right? Emotional intelligence to the intellectual um, component. And I look at them as, you know, technical and behavioral competencies. Regardless of, of your role within healthcare, if you're someone who is in quality and patient safety, or if you are someone who's in revenue cycle, or finance, or strategy, or population health, or um, a clinician, or any of the other myriad roles that exist within healthcare, it's easy to focus on the black and white, the tactical, the technical competencies that have prepared us for that role. Our certifications, our degrees, our credentials, those are so important, but they are only, you know, they're, they're the table stakes. That's what gets us in the door. What differentiates us in our ability to perform at a high level are all of those behavioral competencies. So it's tending to that neuroscience approach, knowing how we're, we're hardwired as humans to respond, but then hacking it just a little bit, right? Knowing mm -hmm. that if we can practice small things, take very small, consistent, incremental steps every day to reprogram or rethink the way that we respond, then we'll more effectively and more intentionally um, respond to those challenges. And we'll be able to understand, we'll see the forest for the trees. It's really easy when we're in the middle of a challenge or an adversity to only see crisis and just want to you know, run around with our hair on fire. And trust me, I'm raising both hands here. I am one of the most <laughs> impatient, impulsive, reactive people on the planet. And, and frankly, it's one of the things that makes me good at what I do professionally. I am a catalyst for action. But if that is ungoverned, unregulated, unchecked, Daniel, I will misfire. So knowing that about myself and then conditioning myself, putting, putting measures around me in the types of people that I collaborate with, in the types of systems and processes that I put in my daily, daily uh, life, the better I can manage my environment because none of us can control what happens around us. We can only control how we respond to those challenges. So if we take a little bit of, you know, a couple of ingredients from the emotional intelligence recipe. And, you know, we mix it in, whisk it up with a couple of the elements from the well-being and resilience and mindfulness recipe. We'll end up with a formula um, that will produce in us the type of effective leadership that we all, I believe, want to bring to the table. Right. Um, 
when you talk about it, you, you do make it sound achievable. Not that it's not hard work, but it's achievable. So for us mere mortals out here, is there a tool or resource that you can share with us so we can all start becoming more resilient leaders? Wow. Well, I am right there with you, my friend. <laughs> I, I am a mere mortal also. And like I said, it is just that consistent heavy lifting. Right. I would say first and foremost, give yourself some grace. We are in the crucible um, mm -hmm. and we have to sustain ourselves in this time so that we can effectively rebuild going forward. So start with a measure of grace. It's not easy because we all have high expectations for ourselves and there are plenty of people around us that have high um, expectations of us, but it's important to give ourselves um, some grace. Second, I would go back to that, that element of you know, social and community well-being. Lean on your community. This MGMA community and the colleagues and friends who support you and, on, and, and, and whom you can support in return, no matter your style, whether you're one of the gregarious and extroverted ones, or if you're a little bit quieter and more introverted, that's the side that I'm kind of standing toward. Um, we all want and need connection and belonging. And to be supported and to be there for others in a time of need, it's validating, it's restorative. And when we're with others, we're learning together, we're growing together, we're advancing. It does help us to feel like we can take on the challenges that we're facing down when we know that we're not alone. Mm -hmm. Now, we do have some good news. You're not only the opening keynote speaker at the upcoming spring show for MGMA, but you're also going to be doing one of the other breakout sessions as well. So I, I did want to ask you about that briefly here. This topic mm -hmm. is on the focused leader, prioritizing what, why, and how we do what we do for maximum impact. Tell us about that. And because in one aspect of it in writing about it you say there are habits of high performing executives i'm feeling there must be some overlap here with what we're talking about with resilience so give us an idea what are some of those habits from those high performing executives uh, yes <laughs> well if the resilient leadership keynote is all about surviving mm -hmm. This, this, this topic is one that's a huge passion spot for me. And I'll say that this is really about thriving. How do we as leaders bring our best to the table so that we can be that high performing leader or executive? Um, and if I could only pick two, uh, I'll, I'll steal two from the list and, and give you a sneak peek. The first is that, you know, we have to focus our energy and resources as executives, as leaders, we have to be strategic. You know, there's that saying, if everything is a priority, then nothing is a priority. Mm -hmm. Well, the most successful organizations and executives are really relentless in their discipline to elevate and make known and then resource what needs to get done. I mean, the alternative is a race to the bottom. It's that messy middle of mediocrity. And if we want to think about the potency and the power of something that's prioritized and a stated known front burner priority as compared to the diluted womp womp of something that we're just trying to make everything important, 
the first piece of advice or the first habit of those high performing executives is that they focus their energy and resources and it's a practice and it's a discipline and it's no fun, but it is what tells us and, and what we know to be the key to, to successful outcomes. The second is to really pursue clarity of purpose. Um, the most successful executives are ones who know themselves very, very effectively, very acutely. They know their strengths and their weaknesses, and they know what lights their soul on fire. So as organizations and as individuals, our acute awareness of why we exist, our mission, that work that, work that lights us up, and regardless of how hard it is, we're convicted and compelled to continue to chase it until we will it into submission, that will sustain us to overcome the obstacles and challenges that are you know, going to litter our path. We all have a remarkable capacity for work and for hardship, but it is only for those who, who very keenly define that clarity of what their purpose is individually and then have the courage to pursue greater alignment to that work who actually end up kind of achieving that best practice, highlight real success that I think we all crave. Mm -hmm. Well, th thank you for sharing that because I, I was reading about that topic and thought, wow, that's one that I at least wanted you to touch on as well because I think that will be so helpful for our listeners uh, when they attend the show. So going back to resilience then are there any final thoughts you want to share with us today about that topic yeah i guess i i will just say uh, i want to say thank you to everyone who's listening i if no one has told you lately let me do so uh, you're appreciated your work is invaluable now more than ever and having spent, uh, you know, the the first half of my career in practice management, um, I understand the challenges of that role. And it is not as common as I we would like that we get recognized or appreciated. So frankly, I will just start there because it's important for each of us um, to be appreciated for the work that we're doing. And I'll close with a favorite quote of mine um, that connects to this topic. It's from Maya Angelou. And it says, do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. And to me, that quote is both encouraging and exhausting because we're all on a journey. And I hope that I'm a better leader today than I was last year and 10 years ago but I also sincerely hope that I'm a better leader tomorrow and next year and 10 years from now than I am today. So do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. It's a journey of growth. And the more intentionally and, and with better information that we each step through it, the more effectively that we can be resilient to face down those disruptions and challenges that are likely not going away. Thanks again to Laurie Bedke. Next up in this best of show is Dr. Pat Hunt, Chief Medical Officer at QGenda. Dr. Hunt is both an entrepreneur 
and an emergency medicine physician. And he believes that physicians are natural entrepreneurs because of their curiosity and willingness to try new approaches until a solution is found. This conversation took place in May of 2021. Let's go to that conversation now. You're balancing both an emergency medicine practice and your role as chief medical officer at QGenda. Um, I don't need to tell you this. I mean, all the studies show it. All the people that we talk to in healthcare are impacted in one way or another by burnout, by stress, by so much being placed on them, so many burdens. So give us an idea. How are you achieving this balancing act that you're, you're dealing with right now? How are you doing it? So, you know, I think for, for anybody, and I tell the, the medical students and the residents, uh, as well as my partners, uh, you know, you, you really do, you, you hit the nail on the head in terms of balance. It really is about balance. Um, and for me, you know, I enjoy doing a lot of different things. And so it's not just 100% all the time clinical and academics, and it's not 100% of the time uh, business and, and so forth. So finding some balance between those two and sort of using different parts of my, my brain to, to think about problems and solve problems uh, provides a, a nice break for me from either one or the other. And then obviously, I think the thing I always I always say is ultimately it, it's about the people that you surround yourself with too. Finding great, great partners, great people to work with, all of that is, that's the stuff that makes the, the biggest difference in, in your ability to kind of continue to do the things you want to do and do them at a high level. It's, you got to have a lot of great support around you. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as influences, I mean, at one point you were telling us about, you did have this computer background from your parents, but as far as being such a person that looks at innovation, that looks at entrepreneurism, that looks at the medical profession, you've got a, a wide range of interest and uh, you know, ideas and thoughts that you follow. Are there certain influences that you've had, books that you've read, anything there that shaped you along the way that's kind of taking you to the spot you are now? You know, I mean, uh, the the first and foremost, obviously, is just my parents and sort of the way they instilled, you know, kind of a work ethic and and things out of the gate. And then ultimately, I think just some some internal desire to solve problems. You have that desire and willingness to kind of think a little bit outside the box to to find solutions to problems that lots of people have. Uh, you can you can come up with those solutions. Uh, and I had some really, really uh, impressive faculty, um, both in med school at Chapel Hill, uh, as well as uh, when I was getting my MBA at Duke, that really kind of pushed us to, to do that, to think outside the box and, and to do a lot of collaborative work with, uh, with our classmates. Um, and, you know, again, I always, I always think that's, that's the kind of stuff that you really benefit the most from when you have people that you surround yourself with that can help build on ideas. And, you know, there's really, there's nobody out there that's got all the answers. And so being able to, to be a thoughtful listener uh, and apply all that to, to whatever the problem you're trying to solve is really important. Mm-hmm. Have you had a favorite book or two that, that uh, really piqued your interest and you, know, you kind the, of took the, that? I, I go back to the, the book um, Jack Welch wrote a long time ago. It was one of the first ones I read in business school called Winning. Um, and it just, a lot of that comes back to some of the, 
the uh, the managerial techniques. And I think the thing it, it, it does come back again to the people issue that uh, you know there's some people that are going to be great to be around, and there's some folks that probably have uh, opportunities elsewhere that may be better for them. And, and don't be afraid to to do that and use that um, because the worst thing you can do for somebody is to keep them in a position that they really are not suited well for. Uh, and it drags everybody else around you down as well. So it, 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 it comes back to that same comment that I made early, that it really does, it's all about the people and finding great people to surround yourself with. Mm-hmm. You make an interesting point because whether it's Jack Welch uh, running GE or um, no matter if it's someone running a large hospital, at the end of the day, we're talking about human beings here. We're talking about people and the issues that they have to deal with. Um, one of the things that we see in studies and in the interviews that we do with healthcare professionals that even though they're caring for those par- uh, patients on that clinical side, then there are those administrative burdens um, that just really weigh them down. I've talked to a lot of physicians that say how much they love working with patients, helping them solve whatever problems or health issues they're having, but then they go home and then they're doing all the paperwork, the administrative work. So what have you done? What, what hacks, what mindset do you have where you're able to deal with that and uh, make it part of your, your work environment and not let it overwhelm you? Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you look back to where medicine was 20, 25 years ago when I really got started and where it is today, they look, they look nothing alike. Um, and a lot of that has been uh, secondary to the technology coming in. Um, and, and the challenge and the thing that is frustrating a lot of times for physicians is that some of that, and sometimes a lot of that, technological burden falls back on the physicians to, you know, to do additional tasks. I've got this, I've got to do that. I've got to do that. I didn't have to do, or used to have support staff to do that. And so I I think the trick is to, to, to embrace it as much as you can. And at the same time, you know, be a voice for change that really helps push things in the best direction possible. So you can't always have, you know, absolutely everything that you need you know, right in front of you, it's not going to be a perfect solution, but being willing to be flexible and, uh, and address those problems so that, you know, your, your, your position when it's all said and done is better than it was at the beginning, because there's no question, every technological solution is going to have some challenges when you get, it's going to be change. And I think that's the other thing that people really, it, it, it's very helpful for physicians. If they can come in out of the gate and be, you know, be people that embrace embrace change versus being you know resistant to it because it's going to happen and the sooner you sort of recognize it's going to happen i just need to accept this and then try and work with it to make the change the most beneficial that i can the better off you're going to be but we we all know that medicine's not going to doesn't look the same now as it did 20 years ago and it's not going to look the same you know 20 years from now Mm -hmm. um in reading about your background one of the things that really struck me was it kept coming across that you have an entrepreneurial spirit. So first, define that for us. What does having an entrepreneurial spirit mean to you? You know, I, when I think of entrepreneurial spirit, I really think of, of problem solvers because ultimately to me, that's what being an entrepreneur is. You really are looking, looking at problems and trying to find solutions to those problems, um, no, no matter whether it's in healthcare or, or anything. And, 
you know, it's, it's just, okay, what's the best way to solve it? What's the most efficient way for me to move from where I am to where I want to be? And does that involve, you know, technology, a different process, whatever that is, and being open to, to again, kind of thinking outside the box. What's the best, uh, the best solution, you know, and, and using all the resources that you have, which, again, I'll sound like a broken record when I say it, but finding great people around you that can kind of help mold and shape your ideas and your processes you should go through it uh, but it really is is being uh, being willing to think outside the box and not be afraid to uh, to kind of step out of your comfort zone mm-hmm. where does that come from is it something that's born into your dna is it something you cultivate over time yeah. how do you get that entrepreneurial spirit i, I, I think it's yeah, I think it's probably both. I mean, I think you have some folks that really do just have sort of that DNA that they, they're always wanting to find a problem and solve it. And you have these sort of serial entrepreneurs that you see, you know, come in and start a project and then another one, and another one. And then you have sort of the other end of the spectrum people that are, and I don't want to necessarily say it's they're risk averse, but you know, they, that might be a good, a good use of that term. You know, they just don't, I don't want anything to change. I want everything to be exactly the same. And I think those folks are probably less likely to, uh, to be entrepreneurs because you've got to be willing to take some risk and understand that you know, you're, you're going to fail. I mean, I've had a number of things that I did in my business career that didn't work out the way I had hoped they did. Um, but every single one of them I learned from uh, and, and everything that I did in those processes helped me get more successful and better the next time I was working on a project. Mm-hmm. You mentioned something interesting there. You said on that entrepreneurial side, you do fail at times. There's you might remember from business school, I'm trying to rack my brain. I think it, what is it about 80, 85% of businesses do fail. Yeah. Um, we yep. don't want to think that in those terms when we're on the medical side, we want to provide those great outcomes, those better outcomes for patients. It might seem that those two mindsets are at odds. Uh, so how do you meld the two together? How do you find success by being entrepreneurial? but also having that scientific uh, physician's mindset as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And I think you do have to separate that a little bit because, you know, you can't be, you know, cavalier or an entrepreneurial is probably not the right word, but when you're, when you're doing patient care, I mean, those things are very scientifically driven. You're, you're sort of doing standard care, best practices when you're, when you're managing your patients, but, that doesn't mean that the processes that you use to, to do that can't be improved and that there's not better solutions out there to, to, to do the things that you're doing. Ultimately, the medicine is the medicine. That part of it is, is very standardized. But there's so many things, particularly today, that wrap around that, that sort of create that, that envelope that we work within. And the ways that we do that are, are often sometimes clunky and not very efficient and finding better ways to manage all of those processes um, will will improve healthcare for everybody and, and ultimately will make you know, the lives of the practitioners better. You spend less time you know, taking things home, like you mentioned before, you're able to get, get your work done, be more efficient and, and have more time to take care of patients. Because when it's all said and done, you know, clinicians, they, they didn't go to medical school or nurse practitioner school or PA school to to do paperwork that nobody ever signs up for that. That's not what we're interested in doing. And so trying to find ways to, to minimize that headache uh, is, is, is going to improve everybody's outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I'm thinking about this past year, thinking about how challenging it's been for everyone, but particularly from the healthcare side of treating people and not just with the COVID side of it, but okay, now that we have some restrictions, how do we get people in the office? So there has been incredible innovation and flexibility this year like no other. Um, what are some things that you can point to from an innovation side, from an entrepreneurial side that makes you proud to be in the medical profession, makes you go, yeah, we, we did something this year and it, it wasn't easy all the time, but we, we did some things that we kind of thought outside the box. Because as you know, at times, even though there's so many creative people in healthcare, because of some standards and guidelines, there's maybe um, an inability, not an inability, but a reluctance to maybe take chances. So what have you seen right. this year that really stood out to you? Yeah, I think, I think that's a great point because, you know, medicine historically is, we're not the, we're not a, a frontline mover for the most part, but uh -huh. in this environment and with COVID, you really had no choice but to, to be as aggressive as you could be within the, within the parameters, you know, within the guardrails that you have. Um, it was really interesting at, at our institution, we actually set up a novel ideas committee um, that I was that I was part of. And it was really fascinating because you, we ended up with, you know, 15 or 20 clinicians that are that are on the committee bouncing ideas off. And, and you know, early on, you know, it's all kind of things. It's it's OK when we're getting ready to intubate folks. Can we is there a way to help prevent, you know, splatter? And so one of the ideas was, you know, plexiglass shield that you could intubate through and we had you know somebody locally that actually put some of those together and you know not all those things pan out and you again you're exactly right you have to do that with with the idea of safety but at it, it, the time you know particularly early on when we really were balancing and not having a great idea of exactly what we were walking into you're balancing sort of the safety of the clinicians and the the the, the patient management and trying to figure okay where's the where's the middle ground where we're not putting everybody at incredible risk to take care of somebody but we're still being able to do the best things that we can so that you know that's just one small example i think the the, the biggest you know elephant in the room on that is just the vaccines themselves I mean, the ability to to get a vaccine and i think as of today i think i saw something that 60 percent of the the u.s as of today has at least gotten one shot which is just an amazing fact mm -hmm. when you think about where we were you know 18 months ago that that we have created something gotten it distributed gotten people vaccinated it, it's it's unbelievable and that's everything from you know the research and the the, the back end all the way down to the frontline folks that are setting up the the vaccination clinics and the public health officials that have just absolutely gone above and beyond over the last 18 months to to basically make this happen. Mm -hmm. In addition to being a physician, that's where we've been mostly focused. You're also CMO at QGENDA. What, what has that been like this past year? Where have you been challenged as CMO on that side of it? And what innovations or breakthroughs have you had on, on, on that side of your business ledger? Yeah, so that's been that's been really fun for me. You know, joining them late last year, kind of in the middle of the pandemic, and uh, and, and getting up to speed with you know just a phenomenal product and a phenomenal team uh, at QGenda has been has been really exciting. And I think you know things that that we're doing there with regards to helping folks manage their rooms better with room management software, doing things on on insights to really give some detailed information about exactly how our providers are using, where, what's the most efficient way to, to do that, as well as just sort of the, the, the 
sort of the core product, the scheduling product, which is where it really all begins for providers. Um, and, and even doing things like, you know, the, we set up tons of sort of free vaccination uh, schedules for folks to try and help, help get that, uh, get those vaccinations rolled out. And then there's a, another half of it for me that's, that's really fun and exciting on the strategic side, kind of looking at other options and ways that we can continue to improve the product and provide uh, better services uh, for our clients. It's just, it really is a lot of fun. And it's very different from my, you know, my other, my other hat in the clinical uh, arena, but it is, it is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that we've been talking about is this, I'll go back to it, this entrepreneurial spirit. What do you say to medical practices or people, leaders within practices to say, okay, you've, you've, you're doing your work, you're, you're, you're treating patients, but you do have that itch. You, you do have things you want to achieve that like you've had, Dr. Hunt, where you've gone outside, have outside the box thinking there. Do you set aside an hour a day, an hour a week? What do you do as far as time managing and putting a priority on some of these innovative thoughts or innovative type thinking to make it happen? Because it's not going to happen if you don't work on it, of course. So how do you do that? Right. Yeah. Yeah, Daniel, that's a, that's a good question. And I think, again, it, it comes back to that balance of, you know, you've got your, you've got your day job. And then, you know, when you, when you have sort of that entrepreneurial spirit, honestly, you know, doing those projects, they, they really are almost like fun hobby kind of things. I mean, some people will work on a car, some people play golf, some people will, you know, work on software projects. Mm -hmm. There's, there's, you just come up with different, uh, different things that, that really kind of motivates you. And, you know, it, if it, if it becomes, I would always say if it became like really my job, my second job and you just are, are burnt out on it, it's probably not what you want to be doing because, you know, the clinical environment and the clinical arena as a physician or, or a practitioner is, is challenging enough and, and trying to create another whole uh, business. If you're, if you're really not hundred percent in is, just a recipe for, for burning out. But what I find is that those sorts of activities and, and ideas and, and kind of new companies and new thoughts are, are just really, really exciting and what keeps me motivated to, to keep, keep doing things. I think if you, if you have that mindset, um, sort of that change mindset, I think those, those projects are, are great. And you can do exactly what you said. So, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to spend an hour a day or I'm going to spend, you know, the hour before I go to bed, I'm going to work on this project or, you know, it's always challenging too, is, you know, most physicians in that age are going to be, you know, they've got kids. And so you're balancing everything, you're balancing work, mm-hmm. balancing life, family, your other projects. But, you know, when you, when you get something that really sort of is like an itch and you got to scratch it, um, it, it, it can be a, a great sort of relaxation kind of release for you. Mm-hmm. Now, not to know, not to uh, focus on the negative, but just to be realistic here, you talked about sometimes you're going to fail at these things. For you, when do you know that you've you've put enough time into it and it just it may not be working either this way and you have to bring somebody else in to help you with it or you just have to pull the plug? I mean, what when do you know that? When do you figure that thing out so you just aren't spinning your wheels? Yeah, unfortunately, there's not like a a little light that just goes off and says, "Okay, this project <laughs> is dead." You know, it doesn't work that way. Um, I, you know, I've had some really uh, some really 
great flame outs. Uh, my, my favorite flame out was I was working on a project uh, totally unrelated to medicine. It was a web development project for, um, for babysitters. I was going to, sh- we had this idea we were going to create this app. We actually did it. We had this app and it was great. And the, the coup de gras was that we'd set it up so that you could, all the, the parents could, you could share your babies. You didn't couldn't get a babysitter that, that you normally use. You could you could talk to one of your friends and share their babysitters. We did a little focus group. We'd gotten it all developed, and they showed up, and we had this group of, uh, of moms and dads that were there, and we gave this idea, and the looks on their faces when we said share their babysitters was just like, you've lost your mind. I'm never going to share my babysitter, <laughs> at which point we knew that project was dead. <laughs> so sometimes it is like very, very quick. It's like, well, that didn't work out so good, but Sometimes it's just you just go and go and you just don't get traction and say, you know what, we've, we've put a lot of time and energy into this, let's, uh, let's move on. But at the same time, even like the, the babysitter project, there, was, there were things in that project and, and parts of it that I used even when I was developing shift admin. So it's never a total loss and you just have to accept that, that, okay, we're, we're not always going to be, you know, 100% home run, but if I can take something out of this, make it positive, learn from it. And then the next time I go, I, A, I don't make the same mistake, and B, I've got you know additional sort of ideas and resources and pathways that I can go down that I didn't have before. Right. Now, we've talked about time and time management many times here already in this conversation. So with your, the two organizations you work with, how do you work that out then? Do you have an allotted time that you've contracted out with both organizations, and this is how much time I'm going to give you a day or a week or how do you work that out and with both entities so they're both okay with it and you're okay with it both mentally and uh, physically, you know, where you can deal with it as well. Yeah, fortunately. So for me, you know, emergency medicine is a, is a, is a great specialty. I love it. And the advantage slash disadvantage of it is it's, you know, it's a 24 seven Specialty. So a lot of times I, I end up doing a lot of my clinical shifts, you know, on Friday, Saturday, Sundays uh, that are not work days. And then, you know, clinically um, I can be free and, and not have uh, as much on the responsibilities on the Cugenda side. But Cugenda has been fantastic, too. They also recognize that I've, you know, I have other responsibilities. And so they're, they've been great, very flexible with my my time. Um, and so, we you know, I run a schedule and they know what my availability is and can schedule sort of around that. And I think that's that's part of it too, is just being, you know, being flexible. It's, it is one of the advantages of, of shift work where, you know, shifts are defined and you have your period where sometimes with office based practices, it can be a little bit more challenging, I think, to do that unless you, you know, set aside a dedicated day, like, you know, Wednesday afternoons, I'm going to be off. That's working on my own projects or, you know, every Thursday I'm taking off and going to be out of the office. So you, you have to go through and, and have those kind of arrangements with your, with your group and have those discussions. And I think it's really important to do that on the front end. So, you know, everybody has the same expectations about what's going on uh, when you start off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I've loved, uh, learning about your creativity, your innovation. So let's share some of that wisdom a final time with the listeners here. What's a main takeaway you'd like our healthcare leaders on this call uh, to know about, Um, you know, to know about an entrepreneurial spirit um, and how that can benefit healthcare professionals and medical practices? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think in, in medicine, we tend to be a little bit resistant to, to change and looking at, at new solutions and better solutions. And as we 
as we as a healthcare entities get get bigger and and broader, I think we need to be uh, be really mindful of that. You know, using technology, finding technology that works across the entire organization that can benefit, you know, all the different specialties and not not trying to do as much one off, but we're going to get this little piece and this little piece because it, what happens is all of a sudden you've got, you know, 45 different pieces of software that, that don't work great or, you know, a, a different kind of bronchoscope for this for this lab than this lab. So trying to find ways to, to standardize things like that can be really, really helpful um, going forward. and and it doesn't. It doesn't mean that you're not being entrepreneurial. I think it really means that you're, you're trying to find the best solution for for an organization. I think that's something that's that's a lot of. It's a. It's very rewarding when you see it successfully done, uh, and I think provides a tremendous amount of value both for you know the, the patients, but really for the clinicians. You know, when you can get software that works great uh, and makes your life easier, it, it's it's a pleasant surprise. Thanks again to Dr. Pat Hunt. And for our final conversation, we're going to hear from keynote speaker Shola Richards. Shola is founder and CEO at Go Together Global. In this September 2021 interview, Shola explains how through resilience, kindness, and mindfulness, you can help healthcare leaders create successful strategies to strengthen team cohesion and togetherness. Let's hear from Shola now. You know, to answer your question more specifically, how did I pull myself out of it? I had to learn techniques for resilience. I had to learn what it really meant to... Resilience has this, this bad idea of like, you just got to grit your teeth and make your way through it. And that's not really it. It's, it's like, it's really some simple, thoughtful things like focusing on what you have the power to control, you know, really surrounding yourself with people who will support you instead of drag you down and, and taking action regardless how little it is towards some sort of healing and improvement. Um, that's how I got out of it about 10 years ago. And that's what I help others to do when they're struggling right now in this day and age. Yeah. Did, did you have a specific aha moment or was this a lot of self-searching, you know, self-awareness that it came to you over time? What, how did it just sort of bubble up to the surface where you kind of took control of your life there? Gosh, I wish I had like a sexier, like origin story. It really <laughs> is so not sexy. It's just like just spending multiple days depressed and in bed. And I was just like, one day I was like, you know what? Like I'm going to brush my teeth this morning. Like, you know what? I'm going to get outside and get some fresh air. And I think the thing that helped to even make that step happen was I just, I felt like there was a little bit more that I could be doing. So instead of overwhelming myself with, I'm just going to make sure that I eat just straight kale and, and I just work out seven days a week. Like that mountain would have been just getting out of bed was challenging when I was really struggling. Right. So I took one step there's a movie <laughs> i have two daughters so i've watched every single disney princess movie right. on earth um frozen 2 where princess anna was having a falling out with her sister princess elsa and she was in a dark place and she just said you know what i'm gonna do the next right thing and that is pretty much what my mentality was when i was stuck just do the next right thing i'll brush my teeth today I will get outside and get some fresh air for a minute or two. I will make my bed. Oh, these are things that seemingly don't mean a lot to the average person who's not in a dark place, but when you start stringing together wins, it helps you to kind of get the momentum needed to be able to move forward. And that's really what I was looking for. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's great advice because in the healthcare world, we have seen some really uh, just mm, some some statistics on mental health and behavioral health that are crushing, uh, particularly oh, yeah. you know across the U.S. Just due to the pandemic, the isolation, the a little bit of the chaos that's been going on, the social mm -hmm. and racial unrest, so many things that have been disturbing that have disturbed people. So that is great advice from you to, if you can compartmentalize and just try to not tackle the whole thing at once, but it's too hey, hard. let's take this first step. So And to your point, I mean, think about these folks who are in charge of managing billing, customer service, compliance, all these different aspects of their role, all on top of a global pandemic, all mm -hmm. on top of people who choose to be compliant with social guidelines and health guidelines and those who do not. And it's so much to ask someone and to ask leaders to be able to manage. And this is not like, hey, you know, just push through for the next six weeks or so and it's going to be fine. We have no idea when this is going to end. And that's what makes it so hard is this indefinite stretch that how long do I need to stay strong for? How long do I need to be strong? Not just for me and my family, but for the people who I supervise and lead in my medical practice. So there's a lot going on. And this is probably one of the hardest times to be a professional, certainly a medical professional that I can remember in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. Good point. Um, in reading about you prior to this interview, but now talking to you, you have a very inspirational outlook on life. It comes across on the page when I read about it, it comes across as I'm looking at you in this video call that we're having. Um, where did that mindset come from? Because you talked about at one point, things weren't so cheery and positive, but now you do have this great outlook on life and just wondering where what is the origin story on that when you think about it you know i'm so blessed to have won the parenting lottery and i think that's you know i tell people because a lot of times people say well i share a lot about my parents I, I certainly will during the keynote and there's they're very inspirational people they're super hard working they 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 have this magical thing about them and maybe magical is not the right word, but to me, it felt magical growing up. It's like, and certainly looking back on it now as a 46 year old man, it's like they were able to, even in situations where they might've struggled or things were hard. I never once felt that. I never once knew how hard they struggled. It was all positive. It was all, and it wasn't like to be really clear. Cause I think sometimes people can be like eye rolling at this. It wasn't like, toxic positivity where like bad things were happening and they're pretending things are great. Like that's not what I'm talking about. They had this really great mentality. It's like, you know what, this isn't great now, but we have an ability to make this better. And that was something that helped me to realize how much potential control I had over my outcomes and things that are going on. Like, man, when I'm in a bad situation, which happens, you know, multiple times a day these days, yeah. I'm like, you know what, I can, maybe this is bad, but I do have the power to make this better somehow. I, I might not even know how exactly, but that is extremely inspirational. So for my two young daughters, when I talk to them and they, you know, my oldest is in middle school and middle school is like a tough time with the mean girl stuff. And like, I have to work with her and work with her to help her to have the same mentalities around like, listen, you can stay positive. You don't have to let this get you down, but don't let these 
opinions of others define you. And when things get tough, there's a way out of it and we just gotta be creative. And that's what really gave me the positive outlook was for my parents teaching me that. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, so beyond your parents and beyond uh, Disney princess movies, what <laughs> other <laughs> sources have been there for you, whether it's teachers, mentors, books, films, anything else that you've just soaked in and embodied into your own uh, talks that you give? Mm. You know, I, it's funny, behind me, I, I have a ton of books and I'm, I'm a reader, so I'm a little bit of a nerd. Um, <laughs> I love reading. There's, uh, and not just reading, I really love listening to great speakers. So I've, had the honor of not not formally, but I called them my mentors from afar. Like one of the first books that I read when I was younger was um, a book by Dr. Wayne Dyer. Mm -hmm. And I read a lot of his stuff. And um, one of his books, uh, The Power of Intention, was something that really helped shape me. I love listening to Les Brown as a speaker. And, you know, you could argue he's the best to ever do it. And he is just someone who I looked at and was so inspired by, you know, and I would really sit and listen to his talks and learn a lot. Um, there's so many people who have had the opportunity to really engage with and anyone who helped me to think a little bit bigger than I was willing to think before. And you know, I'm, I'm a small town country kid and I didn't grow up with connections. I didn't know anybody. Everything that's happened was the result of hard work, but maybe more importantly, the importance of building meaningful relationships. So I learned that early on where even in the speaking industry, where you run into people who are like, you know, the, the person who is like, super mean to the AV person and just like, and as acts like a diva. It's like, I never understood that. It's like, these people are there to help you. And I, I learned early on from my parents in concert with the books that I read about the importance of being kind and, and being gracious and being, you know, thoughtful, compassionate, all these things that people kind of take for granted. So I, that's changed me and made me who I am today. Okay. So are you saying in San Diego, you don't have your, your room won't have to be uh, equipped with green M&Ms or something for oh, you? Oh, no, I didn't say that. I'm expecting <laughs> green M&Ms and like rose petals as I walk <laughs> off of the stage and someone holding my robe, which you guys have my fitting for my robe, right? That yes. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. It's like, all I need is a microphone that works in an audience and we're good. That's, That's all good. I need. I'm low maintenance. Good to know. I'll get that back to the team. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> so, um, as you know, it, it has been pretty difficult these last 18 months, both physically for many people with health issues, uh, just mentally and uh, emotionally challenging. You talked about back in some of your darker days, you just took things one step at a time. You may still be doing that, but <laughs> what have you been doing to get through these days? Have you had a particular exercise regimen or some daily habits that have helped you really uh, fortify what you do on a day-by-day -day basis? Yeah, that's a great question, Daniel. Thanks for asking. I am, I move a lot. So I exercise daily. So I, and by exercise, I mean, I'm, I am working up a sweat for 30 minutes 
every single day. It does something to your mind, not just your body, and to your mind in terms of emotionally to move a lot. And I mean, by a lot, I mean consistently over and over again. And, you know, I'm not expecting everyone to have like, you know, like time to do all this, but you can do something. Like I'm not mm-hmm. willing to hear, I have zero time. Like you have, you have five minutes to move your body, to right. take a quick walk or to, to walk in place in your living room or something just to get your blood pumping a little bit. It's, it's something that can have really powerful effects on your mental health if you do that. And I, I, I needed that during the mm-hmm. pandemic. I had a moment where I was just completely, completely, completely inactive. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't move. And I think a lot of it was the shock of the pandemic. I was dealing with the impossibility of parenting, teaching and and trying to work from home simultaneously. And it was just too much. And I was like, and it really affected my mental health because I knew I wasn't moving around as much as I needed to. And once I got into a little bit of a routine and I've been keeping it ever since, it's made a big difference for me. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, now, we've been talking about meeting up in San Diego. You're going to be speaking at the MGMA's Leaders Conference. That's going to be in October. Woo! <laughs> now, I love wait. this. I know. I know. It's going to be great to meet you there in person. And your topic is called The Courage to Go Together practical strategies to build more cohesive, collaborative, and compassionate teams. I know you don't want to give away too much of the secrets before leading up to it, but give us an idea. What can somebody expect to learn from you, to just absorb from your energy and your inspiration there during that talk? Yeah, you know, I think the main thing that I want people to walk away with is this idea that nothing meaningful can be done alone in order for us to be able to create not just the best outcome for our patients that we serve for the people who we supervise the people who we are in a position to help within the community we need to do this together and together through the concept and the idea of civility how we treat each other and this is something that i think is lost i think we have people who uh you know, are not aware of how their words and actions affect others, or they are aware and they just don't care, which is also a problem, right? So it's like, how do we get, how do we, how do we figure out how to manage and work with people who are in a position where they don't take this stuff seriously? And most importantly, how to make sure that we do as leaders take it seriously, because this changes outcomes without civility, without civility, there's no respect. If there's no respect, and you're not going to trust anyone. If people don't trust you, you're not going to communicate effectively. And if you don't have respect, trust, civility, or effective communication, patients will get sick and potentially die. We'll lose an opportunity to make real progress in our communities. And the people who we're entrusted to lead won't follow us unless they have to. That is not a recipe for success. And it all starts with civility. And that's really what I'm going to get into in my talk practical ways to create a more civil workforce and to make sure that we not just give that civility to others, but dare I say to ourselves as well, so we can be prepared for the challenges ahead. Mm -hmm. What does civility mean to you? I mean, I know in, if we go to the etymology of the word, we, you know, (laughs) we think about civil rights. We we think about, you know, civil unrest. We think of all these 
you know, words that have branched out from there. But when you're talking about civility, what are you getting at? What do you mean by that? That's, you know, civility has so many definitions. The one that I tend to roll with the most is a consistent and sincere demonstration of respect. Hmm. To me, it's very, it's simple. It's not just like me saying, hey, Daniel, holding the door open for you. And then, you know, well, that's fine. And I appreciate (laughs) offers of niceness, but it's more than just the simple surface level stuff. It is truly demonstrating that you care. If I'm going to hold the door open for you, for example, you walk through it and you don't acknowledge the fact that it held the door open for you. And I'm like, oh, what a jerk. You didn't even see that's not civility. That's, that's something else. That was an ego-based activity. I needed something from you in order to make Mm -hmm. that activity feel good. The reality is if I'm truly in a place of kindness and I'm doing this from wanting to just make your day a little bit better, your response is irrelevant because I'm doing something for you and whether or not you thank me or not, that doesn't make a difference. But civility is something that's really hard to get a grasp on for a lot of people. It's not a word that is often discussed. It really comes down to the idea of finding common ground, disagreeing without disrespect, which is a very um, uncommon thing in this day and age, quite frankly. I think we're in a place where you disagree, I disagree with you, I'm going to demonize you. So And unfortunately, that does creep into the workplace. So we have to be aware of that. We have to make sure that we find common ground in the work that we do and make sure that we're showing that whenever we come up to serve our patients, our clients, or whoever else we need to serve. For sure. Thank you for that. Um, Now, in your session, and I hope I get this right, please correct me, but you talk about the Ubuntu philosophy. Very, very good. You said it perfectly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Nicely done. (laughs) What what is that philosophy? Where did it come from? How did you learn about it? Yeah. So Ubuntu, again, perfectly worded, is an African philosophy that means I am because we are. My dad is from Sierra Leone, West Africa. We've talked in many, many times about this concept, Ubuntu doesn't have a one-to-one, I guess, equivalent in the English language, but really what Ubuntu is, it is the height of selflessness, is the height of kindness, compassion, and connectedness. It is a really powerful concept. And it's this idea that if we really start looking at the world where There's no place where I end and Daniel begins, for lack of a better way of putting it. We have some sort of connection and we may not be able to see it, but it's it's there. That is something that allows us to do our best work and to ensure like if we are choosing to throw some mean words at each other, or if I were to send some mean words to you, I'm not just hurting you, but I'm certainly hurting myself as well. And understanding that if we really want to go forward, we're gonna have to do so together. We can't do this alone. And that's, that's what this concept is about. It's so powerful. And it's such a message of just real powerful kindness, what we can use to begin to change the world. And I am so excited to share this with the group in San Diego. It's gonna be fun. Okay. Now, in your talk, I was doing some research on it and you ask, it, it, it has a level of interactivity, at least from a mental aspect. You ask yes. the audience to ask questions of themselves. Mm-hmm. I want to get this right so they can begin to create a better work environment for themselves and for others. 
Again, I don't want you to give everything away, but what are some of the questions that we all can be asking ourselves so we can work together better with more civility? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you the questions, but I can't go deeper because I want to save the meat. Okay. For, for, but I will give you the questions and the questions are, and it's, it's, it's deeper than it sounds. So the question that you need to ask yourself before you have any interactions with anyone is, is it kind, is it true, and is it necessary? And the science behind this is what I'm excited to share with the people in San Diego because it's, these are questions you need to ask yourself before you speak and do anything. And the idea is you should be saying yes to all three before you move forward. But what does it actually mean? I'll get to that. And also too, after explaining it, there's gonna be an opportunity for me to preemptively answer any uh, objections or yeah, buts that may come. Like, yeah, but Shola, you know, <laughs> in my medical practice is, so I'm, 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 I'm ready. So that's, it's those three questions can make an enormous difference. And these questions have been used from the military to the aerospace industry to higher education and a ton of times in healthcare. So I'm really excited to be able to share this with the audience and really get practical with them. Okay. So one of the issues that we're dealing with right now is a new type of workplace. Um, the pandemic has it's offered us an opportunity for many people to work remotely, whereas it's been forever and ever, it seemed like it was the typical workplace where you clock in at a certain time, clock out at a certain time, and you're at a physical location. Now, we're not all in the same place at the same time. So how do we remain connected and have engagement with one another when we're not all there at the same time? Yeah, you know, I think this has been one that's been really, really tough for a lot of people. And, you know, I'm just going to be real. There's no, and I'm going to speak for myself on this. I don't think there's really any replacement for in-person interaction. I think we can do the best we can with the tools that we have available. And one of the ways that we can connect, even if we're not actually connecting in person, is to connect with a little level of vulnerability. And let me, let me get to what I mean by that. So some, I think a lot of people are struggling. I think there's some folks who are like, man, this is great. I get to stay at home and wear pants with an elastic waistband all day. This is incredible, right? So, but there's a lot of people who are really struggling and aren't in a, are literally not safe at home um, and, and, don't, and don't feel good there. And I think that's where the ability to create psychological safety with your people is important where people can feel safe sharing things that may be considered vulnerable knowing that if you have that level of connection it's like hey how are you doing today you know how what's going on and i heard from someone i think this is so true i think we're all two how are you's from a breakdown right it's like how are you like, i'm fine no, 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 Daniel, how, how are you? It was like the second one is the one that gets you, you know? So it's like, I think there is a opportunity to connect more deeply, say, hey, listen, are you, is everything okay? I'm here to support you. I know that we're not actually there physically in the same office, but it's important for us to stay connected. If there's anything that you need, please let me know. And I think these are ways for people to feel 
like they have an outlet, that they feel safe. I don't want people to just assume that everyone loves working from home. I think a lot of people do, Mm -hmm. um, quite frankly, but not everyone does. And I think that is, I've run into situations over the past year of doing this where people are in very, very toxic situations at home that are unbearable. So, and you might not even know it because they show up to every meeting they're there and they're smiling on their Zoom screen or whatever platform you're using. And then you don't really know or assume that things are not, not well, but it's up to us as leaders to find a way to connect, whether it's frequent messaging or, or having one-on-ones, which you can still do and just checking with them and, and asking. Maybe you're not gonna get the answer the first time, but the more you repeat, hey, is there anything I can do for you? Let me know, so I'm here for you. That can make a difference to someone who's struggling. Okay. I have a final question for you. You've mentioned some terms like mindfulness and kindness several times. So what can you tell us about this self-awareness, mindfulness from your own journey that can then be translated to teams, to more compassionate teams, more collaborative teams? Mm -hmm. I think being in the moment, and I use this really intentionally, can make a big difference by being present when you're having a conversation with someone, it can make a huge difference. We're so hyper distracted in (laughs) our world right now. And it's like, it's really challenging. So I tell people, there's certain things that we can do to be mindful and, and to show and demonstrate that you're being kind. One of which seems so simple. Uh, It's to show that you're really serious about this stuff, starting and ending your meetings on time. Now, I really think about when you have one-on-ones with your employees, it's interesting to me how the person who is in the supervisory role and the person who is the individual contributor, so to speak, um, how I've seen supervisors show up late and Mm -hmm. show up consistently late. Don't call, don't text and say you're running late. Come in 15 minutes, hey, I'm here now, let's go. It's such, a, it's such an example of rudeness and a lack of self-awareness about how their words and actions affect others. So I challenge people to be, to be aware. How would you feel if someone, if you're sitting for a meeting, waiting for it to start and you have other work to do and you show up 15 minutes late without any pre-warning? So I really want people to be really freakishly in the moment and to be aware of how their words and actions affect others consistently. And I remind them of this. It's like, all right, that's what those three questions are really geared to do is to make sure that you stay in the moment and you do this little checklist in your head before engaging, before having that conversation, before sending out that email that you may regret 24 hours later. These are the things that are so important to do that often get overlooked. And uh, I'm really excited to talk to you all about it in more detail. Well, that's going to do it for this best of episode of Insights. Thanks to our guests, Laurie Bedke, Dr. Pat Hunt, and Shola Richards. Also, Thanks to Mineral Tree and to Metavolve for sponsoring this week's show. Mineral Tree is a leading AP and payment automation provider in healthcare, and they'd love to show you why. To learn more, visit mineraltree.com/mgma. And if you don't know the outcomes your staff are producing every day, you aren't operating successfully. Metavolve can help you find solutions to the biggest problems medical practices face. Go to metavolve.com 
to learn more. And before we sign off, I want to thank you for being a part of the MGMA community and the MGMA podcast community. It's so cool every week putting these podcasts together and sharing these stories with you. I just want to thank you for listening and thanks for the feedback. And I'm looking forward to another big year in healthcare and in podcasts in 2022. Thank you. And as a reminder, if you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. If you do have topics you'd like us to cover, experts you'd like us to interview, or you just want to connect with us, email us at podcast at mgma.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at MGMA Daniel. MGMA Insights is presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, and I'm Daniel Williams. Stay safe. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights Podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership. Thanks.